0: This is the Area 941 Radio Wolinsky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Dennis Lim, whose book is titled Tale of Cinema, which focuses in on the South Korean film director Hong Sang-soo. A retrospective series of Hong Sang-soo's films will be at BAM PFA in Berkeley from February 3rd to the 18th, and opening night, I understand, will include the film Tale of Cinema. There are also 10 films from Hong Sang-soo on the uh, library app Canopy. Dennis Lim is the artistic director of the New York Film Festival, previously the director of programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Uh, has organized other film festivals, was the film editor at the Village Voice from 2006 to 2013, is a New York Times contributor, has taught at Harvard and NYU. And this is his second book. The first is David Lynch, The Man from Another Place. One of the interesting things about Hong Sang-soo is that you can migrate from film to film And on some level, you could see a bunch of them, but you get the same sense from all of them. And I've never heard of another director like that.
1: You know, it's been said that every filmmaker makes the same film over and over. And I think Hong is just a very extreme and maybe uh, more literal version of that. You know, I think all artists uh, repeat themselves, but I think Hong is interesting because he foregrounds this process, uh, this method of repetition in his
0: work. Before we get into some of the particulars which you talk about in Tale of Cinema, which is part of a series by different film critics, is there a reason you picked Tale of Cinema or was it more because the title grabbed you for the title of the book?
1: I think a little of both. If you're going to write a film book, why not write about a film called Tale of Cinema. Um but the series that you mentioned which is published by Fireflies, the idea is that it's it's 10 writers, 10 films from each year of the first decade of the 21st century. And the idea is that, you know, each writer was invited to to pick a film and a filmmaker and and to use that film as a way to to get at other, other questions, you know, about the state of cinema or about whatever. And it was, I think, pretty clear from the beginning that it, it's an impossible project to really write about one Hong Sang-soo film without taking into consideration all the others, uh, for the reasons that you've already alluded to, because he works so much with repetition and it really is a career project that has to be considered as a whole. It doesn't really make sense to isolate one part from the whole. And I think Hong's project really is interesting to think about because of his place in cinema today. And I think the book was just an attempt to think about what sets him apart, what makes him interesting, uh, and what these films tell us about cinema today.
0: Before we get into more about Hong Sang-soo, how did you, Dennis Lim, come to first become aware of him i hadn't been aware of him until bam pfa contacted me my knowledge of him is very recent and suddenly i immerse myself in what is it seven films <laughs> my feeling after the first film i saw which was power of kang wan i kind of didn't know what to make of him And then I began watching them and slowly a vision forms because it can't help forming. But at your end, Mm -hmm. how did you find him? And when you did find him, how long did it take you to realize that there was something very interesting and unusual going on here? I think what you describe
1: is, is sort of how most people encounter Hong. I think it's really difficult to just watch one Hong film or you know or even two i think there's something cumulative about how we how we make sense of these films they only really make sense when consumed in bulk in a way i remember encountering his films as a viewer and as a critic at, at, when i was covering the New York Film festival where i now work you know and he was from i think maybe around the time of his fourth or fifth film was, was, was sort of a fixture at the festival and this would have been in the early 2000s and since then you know as a programmer I've, I've, I've programmed many of his films uh, at, at the festival when I started working there and also have, have written about him and interviewed him a, a, a few times. Your question about when's, when it becomes clear, it's hard to pick one film or one or identify one aha moment I think you could go in any order in, in, in the Hong filmography. And maybe after two or three films, you begin to you know, be aware of that this is an artist who's doing really interesting things with narrative form and structure and with repetition, playing with how films are told and looking at just questions of memory and perception through these really very simple films that are really all about, you know, encounters. Somebody meets somebody else, you know, there's a, uh, a romantic entanglement or a night out. These are really narr- narratively very simple films, but I think they become stranger and more complex, uh,
0: I think, the more of them, them you watch. One thing I noticed about these films, you know, a lot of films you could stop and start, you know, particularly since we're sitting at home usually, or at least I am watching them on uh, on a television screen with Hong films, you have to watch them from beginning to end. And you can't give up early on because it, that particular element of thus far is boring, because something is going to happen that's going to change your mind. And this happens every film. Yeah, I would hope that most
1: films are still watched. From beginning to end, I mean, I know what you mean. You know, increasingly, we watch films at home and have more control over how and when we, we watch them. But yeah, I think it's especially important because you know, in Hong, the structure of the film, I think that the, the shape of the film is quite central to the meaning of the films. And I think that often doesn't become clear until, until the film is over. And, and that's been something you know, that has been a hallmark of his work from, from early on.
0: Last night, I watched Claire's Camera on Canopy. It's not part of the uh, film festival. At first, and this is almost indicative of all of Hong's films, at first, it simply seems to be a very simple story about a woman who's been fired meeting a French woman played by Isabelle Huppert. The French woman also meets a director, who is working with the boss who fired the young woman. And it feels as if, if you were to straighten it out and put all of the scenes in order, because they're not, you would have a simple narrative. But as I was thinking of it, I kept wondering, would you? And I think that's part of what he's doing. Yeah, I think that's part
1: of it. And and it's also funny to hear, you know, to hear you, to hear anyone describe a Hong film, because you know, if you if you describe the plot of a Hong film, you, it it could be the plot of almost any other Hong film. I mean, they all are about situations of this sort, really quite mundane, everyday situations that he brings a certain kind of um, of attention to, uh, and 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 he does something with the form of the film, uh, whether he's playing with chronology or or point of view. Uh, something happens that defamiliarizes it. Uh, I think is, is is maybe one way to put it makes it strange, makes it, makes it interesting.
0: If you were in Claire's camera to put them together, would they make sense? Sometimes I got the feeling, and I don't want to watch it again to make sure because I like the thought that it's I haven't figured it out. I get the feeling that Isabelle Huppert meets the woman both before and after she's been fired, and I'm not sure which. And that itself is kind of a Hong thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've hit on something there. This sort of this lingering ambiguity, you know, this the this sense that the film is a puzzle, but not really a puzzle that you're meant to solve is one way, I think, to think about his film.
0: One of the characteristics of your book, Tale of Cinema, Dennis Lim, is that you start enunciating the various elements that pop up in multiple films. And I'd like your take on a few of them. The main one that comes up is that in every film, there seems to be a scene and it's kind of the same scene. It's in a restaurant. The camera has one person on one side, one person on the other. There may be more people involved. The only movement of the camera is occasionally zooming in and out, It's all one take, and usually on the table is some food and lots of empty bottles of booze. (laughs) And every film, when you talk to him, what did he say about that?
1: I think for Hong, the reason there are so many of these sort of table scenes, people drinking, talking, eating, the reason scenes like these are so common in his films is because they're so common in life. We eat several times a day. And I think these are also, because in his films, food is often consumed with alcohol. These are opportunities for, for something to happen. I think, you know, the the table scenes in Hong are where the plot advances. It's where things come to a head. They're often also the longest scenes in his films. And yeah, I think they have become a kind of signature. And this is true with all elements that Hong repeats is that, you know, as, as you watch more and more of these films, you become attuned to them, not as, not because they're repeated, but because they're different, because because there's variation. Like how is one table scene different from another? Is the perspective different? Does the drama escalate in a different way? Um, You know, uh, and I think he's, he's, this is, this is something that's really important to his work is this ability to generate like endless variations from
0: very simple, very simple elements. After a while, you become very attuned to going, why is he zooming in and out? Why is the camera slightly moving? What is that fish tank doing in the background? And I'm not sure if we're supposed to answer those questions or what. What do you think? He would never answer
1: those questions, but I think he would be happy for an audience to 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 attempt to to answer them, what you the zoom that, that you mentioned, I think, is, is, is a signature of Hong's. It actually emerges in this film, Tale of Cinema, the one that is the, the nominal focal point of the book. And I think how Hong uses the zoom is, is really quite unlike how it's usually uh, used. It's, it's a very, I think, counterintuitive use of a zoom. It, there's nothing kind of elegant about it. It is often a device that in, in Hong's hands kind of calls attention to itself. It's a little bit clumsy, and I think it is used in, in different ways in different scenes and in different films. You know, sometimes it's just a kind of punctuation. Uh, it's a it, it's almost like a, a little like comic note. You know, it's a way to kind of call attention to himself, the filmmaker. I think the films are in some ways very self referential, like reflexive films. And, and I think this is one way in which he inserts his presence in the film. But I also think there's something about this movement, this this, this strange artificial movement of the zoom, of, of zooming in and then out that kind of mirrors what's going on with the, you know, just the, the mental state of the characters who, who, who are often, I think how you might describe a typical Hong character is somebody who's just trapped in their own heads. And I think there's something about the, the the camera move of the zoom that is like kind of a visual analogy of this thing that happens to his characters. They cannot stop sort of like zooming into their own heads.
0: Tale of Cinema, part one is a story and part two, it turns out that part one is a film that the characters in part two have seen. In Right Now, Wrong Then, we have Part one is the story of a filmmaker who meets an artist. Part two is the same story set in a different kind of alternate reality. Uh, Power of Kang Wan has multiple parts. Oki's movie has four parts. It struck me suddenly that all of his films do, but they don't. They seem to stop at a certain point. I, I guess asking what he's doing here it almost seems like he's trying to create a multiverse it's almost science fiction yeah
1: you know when we did a retrospective of of Hong Sang-soo at Lincoln Center we called it the Hong Sang-soo multiverse because i think there is a way in which you might think of these films as creating multiple realities and really questioning the nature of the very nature of reality this is a hallmark of his films fragmentation not just telling a story, but calling attention to how the story is told. This is something Hong, Hong has always done. And I think the films that we selected for the series you know, are, are emblematic. I think there's seven films in, in the program. He has made 28, I think. And to give you a sense of how quickly he works, when I started working on the book, he had made 23 films and he got up to 28 in a two and a half year period. I would suggest that if anybody is new to Hong, as you are, it, um, it, it sounds like, and you know, intrigued by these kind of the way he plays with narrative, he finds a seemingly infinite uh, number of ways to do that. And I mean, the films, some of them, you know, exist seem to exist on a single plane of reality. Some of them uh, shift perspective. Some of them sh- seem to shift from, as you say, one universe to another. And I think the countless ways in which one might toy with narrative form, I think is, is you know, sort of what makes him, I think, one of the most fascinating filmmakers working today.
0: You've interviewed him once or multiple times?
1: Uh, multiple times over the years, yeah. he when, when he was in New York for a retrospective in May of last year, we did a few longer onstage conversations.
0: In those interviews, what kind of hints, and you seem to indicate in tale of cinema that he doesn't talk too much about it what kind of hints is he given about what he thinks he's doing here
1: he says a lot about what interests him about cinema about his idea of cinema he says a lot about his process what he does not do is tell you why he's doing something that's the line he draws. I've sort of read enough interviews and done enough with him and seen him in conversation that he's he's not going to offer interpretations. I think he's 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 pretty adamant that that that's up to the viewer to to you know to make sense of the film to to, to complete the picture. But he said a lot about his early life and he said a lot about his, you know, his influences, filmmakers who were important to him as a young man. And he says a lot about how he works in a very particular process of of working where he enters these days, he enters production without a script and he writes the scenes that he will shoot the morning of the shoot, gives them, gives these pages to his actors with just enough time to learn them and makes the films in, in chronological order. He really finds the film as he goes, which is a very unusual way of working. And, and he said a lot about, about this process. This process also accounts in part for why the films you know, are the way they are.
0: When he gives these scripts and gives the actors some time to learn them, we're talking you know, seven to 10 minute bursts where the camera is not going to cut at all how many times does he film any individual scene? I would think that on some of these long takes, there have to be screw-ups. Does he just go with it? He does do repeated
1: takes. You know, shooting on digital, which he's done for a long time, does permit that. He works with professional actors. I think Hong has a knack for casting. There are many great actors and, and a great performances in his films. But yeah, you're right. I think these are difficult scenes for an actor to pull off. They're long, complicated dialogue scenes, and they, they do go on, yeah, for, 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 as you say, seven, eight minutes or, or, or even longer in some cases.
0: And in those scenes, everything feels natural. It feels like they're unscripted, but in fact, they're all scripted, word for word.
1: He does not encourage improvisation. You might watch a film and, and get the sense that they're improvised because there's something, yeah, kind of loose about these scenes. But they're written. I think what, what is important is that he's writing them just before he shoots them too, you know, which is a really very unusual way of making a film to really not have a sense of the whole picture as you embark on it.
0: Have you talked to any of the actors?
1: A few of them. It's an unusual way of working, but I think a good actor works with with what they're given. I think it's important for him to work with collaborators who are on his wavelength, you know, who sort of understand the universe he works in, that that these characters, the type of characters, the type of acting that he calls for. And I don't think those are really very different from film to film.
0: His influences, which you mentioned before, French New Wave, obviously. You mention in the book, Cezanne in terms of, I guess, the imagery that he's using, the day-to-day imagery. Has he talked specifically about other filmmakers who grabbed him and how he maneuvers his learning of them into his films?
1: not in those terms in terms of the filmmakers who have been i mean you know he he's 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 talked about um you know films he loves and he contributed and Sight and Sound just did this poll on the greatest films of all time and and surveyed a lot of uh, critics and filmmakers and Hong Hong's list is on it it's full of you know people you might expect like uh, Ozu and and uh, i think Ozu and Buñuel and Eric Rohmer uh, i think the most important influence when it comes to a filmmaker is actually Robert Bresson He credits, you know, Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest as as the film that really made him think that he could go into narrative filmmaking. I think he was more of an experimental filmmaker to start with. He actually went to art school. You know, he studied at the Art Institute of Chicago and in the Bay Area at the California College of Arts and Crafts. Even though he studied film, he studied film in the very particular context of, of an art school. And Brisson is an important figure for Hong, not only because of the films, but because of of his writings. His book, you know, Notes on Cinematography, Hong talks about this as really his Bible. As a young man, he carried it around with him. He says for years. I don't know that you know watching a Hong film, you would necessarily think of Brisson or vice versa, but if you read Notes, which I think is you know one of the most important books ever written about the cinema you will see how relevant a lot of Brisson's ideas are to Hong. A lot of Brisson's ideas are about simplicity, are about making do with small subjects, with modest subjects, with working with what is found and what is available, and how to create these really maximal effects from minimal means. You know That's what Brisson did in his films, and in some ways that's what Hong is doing in his films. So I think that that's one important key to understanding the Hong project.
0: The quotidian element of all is films. Everything is every day. And sometimes, very rarely, is there a revelation that will change anything there is in a recent film in front of your face, which is very unusual Mm -hmm. because that has a secret that's revealed partway through and I don't think any of the other films I saw have that element.
1: Yeah, we won't give it away, of course. But I do think that film, it's, I think, of a piece with a lot of his later work. Many of his films have, have very simple narratives. And this one is, I think, one of the simplest. Uh, you know, It doesn't really do too much playing around with narrative, like chronology or things like that. But I think you're right. The big thing that happens in this film is this revelation that changes how we think about what we've seen—it's interesting to, to see how you know how, how filmmakers evolve with time, with age. You know, and you see in his films as, as sort of a, a kind of mellowing. Uh, the films, I think, are um, the, the later films are more melancholic, but they're also more stripped down. They're also simpler. They're starker in some ways.
0: You list a lot of events that occur in each of the films. Awkward, lousy sex is one of them in most of the early films. There's a lot of directors, which gives the idea that these are autobiographical, which they are and aren't. Most of the directors are asses. In fact, most of the men in these mm-hmm. films are real bastards. Yeah. But I noticed some repeating things There's a restaurant called Novel in at least two of the films. There's a character named Arium in multiple films. But I want you to talk about one other thing that you don't mention, which is when every scene ends, the characters leave, but we see 10 to 15, 20, maybe more seconds of that shot going on. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? That's... I would guess it's a kind of nod to
1: what were called, you know, pillow shots in Ozu cinema, which are almost these sort of these these breaks, these 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 scenes that serve as punctuation. But obviously, I think Hong has a, a slightly different way of working. They give you a kind of breathing room in 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 the film. That is definitely a bit of a, a, a bit of a Hong hallmark as well. He does it more in, in some films than others.
0: Yeah, well, I noticed when I was watching Claire's camera last night, there's a scene where Isabel Huppert and Kim are crossing the street and they cross the street, almost hit on the way, actually. They go out of frame And then we watch many, many cars pass by before the scene ends. It just stops you in your tracks for a second, which I guess is the point. Right.
1: It's an interesting observation. Yeah.
0: It seems that what he's doing, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that what he's doing is as you're watching something, he's forcing you to see what, the tropes of regular movies are, and then say, Hey, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to take you out of that world instantly.
1: Absolutely. I think that's very well put. And I think that is a great way of describing the project. I mean, I think his films are really questioning in a very fundamental foundational level. Like what is a film? What does a film need to be you know, do, do films have to look or act a certain way or, or can they do other things? Uh, and I think in his very, you know, kind of sly, subtle way, each Hong film sort of poses that question.
0: If you were to pick, say, out of all of the films, I assume you've seen them all, three that somebody could watch and kind of get the best idea because this is the cream of the crop. Uh, which ones would you pick?
1: That's tricky, but I think the ones in the series, just working with Kathy Garretts so of the PFA, we came up with this list. I should also note that we're showing them as not as strict double bills. They're ticketed separately, but I did think of them as, as pairs. So there are really three pairs of Hong films in the PFA series, plus a recent film, In Front of Your Face. And, you know, I paired these for the reasons that you described when you were talking about the films earlier, just like certain, certain affinities and, and similarities in, in their narrative or in their structure. I would say Tale of Cinema, which is, you know, the, the film that I selected as the kind of entry point to the Hong universe. I think this is a really important film for a few reasons. It's the first film that he produced through his own production company. So I think it marks an important uh, turn in his work, a more radical, a more stubborn version of independence. If you you look at Hong's recent films, they are literally made by a crew of two or three people and then a handful of actors. And this film, I think, is an important movement in that direction. It's also the first film in which he uses the Zoom. And it's, I think, a particularly interesting example of the two-part structure that Hong uses. And also, it's a film that engages directly, head-on, this question of autobiography, autofiction. What does it mean for an artist to mine his own life or the life of people he knows for his work? And that's something that Hong has you know, often been accused of and it's something that he often foregrounds and dramatizes in his films. So I think Tale of Cinema, for that reason, I think Oki's movie is another important turning point in Hong, it's a film that has one of his most complex narrative structures i think you know it has the four part structure as you noted but it's a film in which i th- i think you talked about you know these these lingering mysteries of hong i've watched this film several times and i still don't quite know how exactly the four parts are related to one another you know one is a film within another one of them and, you know it's one of his more puzzling films you know puzzling and a, a really fun and productive way and it's also a film in which he you know another important turning point in his process his methodology it's a film in which he gave up even writing treatments he he just was a film where he developed this this idea that he could just arrive on set without a single line of dialogue written and that he could just write it on the morning of the shoot without even having a treatment so Oki's movie is an important film for that reason i think right now wrong then is maybe the best entry point to Hong it's a film that illustrates as clearly as possible as, you know, as you can imagine like how how a two-part structure might function I think right now wrong then also has maybe some of his best performances I think the lead actors in that film um, especially wonderful
0: right now, Wrong Then, is the one that I would pick. One thing about it, though, is that through the first hour or 40 minutes of it, I kept going, why am I watching this thing? And it's only in the second half that it all makes sense. That happens in every film, but maybe more in that than any of the others.
1: Yep, I think so.
0: Dennis Slim, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk a little about your career. You didn't come full-blown as the director of programming in the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Where did you get interested in film, and how did you veer toward criticism rather than filmmaking?
1: I've never been interested in filmmaking. I was studying mathematics and found myself much more interested in writing about all kinds of things, films, music, books, and got more into film by, you know, taking a few film classes, really obsessively going to movies in New York and also in London where I did did some years of, of university. My first job out of graduate school was at the Village Voice, the Alt Weekly in New York. I started as an editor uh, on the film and music sections, but then, you know, started working more and more with film. I think I've always sort of seen criticism and programming as as sort of as going uh, hand in hand. As a full time, you know, critic journalist, I would dabble in programming would do a series here and there for various cinematechs and institutions in New York. And then at a certain point, I think the, the the balance just flipped. I found myself just doing more more curation than criticism.
0: And how did you get involved in working on the book on David Lynch?
1: That book was also part of a series, actually, edited by by James Atlas, a great editor who was... Publishing, I think there might also have been 10 books in that series, and they were a series of just biographies modeled on the sort of Penguin Lives uh, series. And I think there were only two, two books out of the 10 that were about filmmakers. The other one was about Hitchcock by Michael Wood. I knew that they, they were interested in a film book, and I proposed Lynch, and, and that's how it, how, it, uh, how it came about. I've written these two books on two two filmmakers who they mean a great deal to me and somebody was asking me what they have in common and I think they're quite unconventional in their approach to, to to narrative, but other than that, they don't have a ton in common. But for me, I think just from the process of engaging with the work and thinking about the work, to me they are, and this this gets at something you were t- you were talking about, there's something inexhaustible about the work. I don't feel like they're used up even after I've seen the films many times or written about them, which I often do feel that it's possible to fully digest and process a work and, and be done with it. And uh, I think with, with Lynch and with Hong, there are these, yeah, lingering mysteries or ambiguities. The films remain on some really satisfying way, in, in some really satisfying way, impenetrable to me,
0: ultimately. I can see a connection, particularly with Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. The way in which they're interested in
1: how a simple narrative shift, a simple change in perspective, can alter the meaning of a film. Sure, I think. Yeah, not not many filmmakers, I think, are experimental on that level. So, yeah, I think I think there's something something they have in common.
0: What about where Twin Peaks fits into? An examination of Lynch as a filmmaker, and also should we completely discount his version of Dune?
1: Yeah, well, Dune. I'm not sure we're ever going to get a great movie of Dune. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. That book does not seem uh, to lend, lend itself to adaptation. The film has its charms. I, I wouldn't write it off completely. I think it has, you know, it has, it, there's something so eccentric and weird about it. I wouldn't call it his greatest film. I think some people have, like the theorist Slavoj Žižek calls Dune Lynch's greatest film, which I think is a very perverse uh, very perverse take. Yeah, Twin Peaks is uh, in some ways, and I'm increasingly convinced of this after the, what was it, 18-hour um, third series, third season, The Return. I'm increasingly convinced of that's that's his great work you know, his most important work, if you include um, Firewalk. Yeah, Firewalk with me and the pilot and all that. And it's just as as just this monumental body of work, something that spans multiple forms and decades, 25 years. It's a pretty remarkable, I don't even know what to call it. (laughs) It's not a film. It's a film. It was a network TV series. And then it became like, you know, a, a cable series that most people watched, probably on their computers. Yeah, it's something that I just rewatched it recently because I was teaching a class on on, on Lynch, uh, you know, all, all 18 hours of, of The Return, and it's a remarkable work. To see Lynch make something of that scale and that ambition you know, at the stage of his career uh, is really remarkable.
0: As a film critic, and I looked at your list of the top films uh, on Criterion, and I have to say I've only seen a couple of them, They're often another world from the way most people have seen films. I would assume they're all great films. But how do you look at something like long-form television? Mm. Sure, we have the exceptions of auteur television from Fastbinder or Bergman or Lynch. Right. But we've also got all these other ones which kind of straddle things. Scorsese started one, Ridley Scott another. How do you look at them as a film critic?
1: You know, there's obviously some some overlap, and obviously there's some back and forth. People work in film and in television. But a lot of what I watch in that form, and a lot of what I consume in that form, even the work that I like, I find it different. It's a slightly different medium, I think. You know, I think it obeys different narrative rules. And I consume it in a different way. I have a different relationship with something I'm watching on my computer than when I'm sitting in a, you know, in a darkened room with other people with a huge, you know, image before me. The enveloping experience of the cinema to me, there's still nothing like it. And I think, you know, the work that was made for the cinema. I'm not a purist. I think it's great that people can access movies in so many different ways now. But I, I hope that the cinematic experience you know, remains. I wouldn't say the main way, but like a, a very important way of how we watch
0: movies. Do you watch much in the way of popular movies like Avatar? Or... Sure.
1: My job requires that I watch a very wide range of movies from the very commercial to the very experimental. The audience is not monolithic, you know, and I, and I think we try to create this picture of cinema through our programming that really speaks to. To a range of audiences. If I'm more inclined to, you know, to champion work that is, as you put it, maybe a little bit lesser known or you know not widely available, there is a reason for that. I mean, and just to put it simply, I think that is my job. I mean, I don't really need to be promoting Avatar. <laughs> you know, I think uh, film programmers should be calling attention to what. Isn't otherwise easily accessible and available, and I think you know that's the job of a programmer, whether they're working for a film festival or or, or a cinema tech. But yeah, I do watch and like a lot of commercial films. I mean, I love you know classical Hollywood and, and New Hollywood. Um, I don't love a lot of what the studios produce these days, but I think they're still producing a lot of really good work. I think Jordan Peele is a great filmmaker. I was a big fan of, of Nope. I, I wish more people made ambitious work in the popular idiom these days, but it's, it seems to be you know, increasingly, increasingly rare.
0: Have you seen RRR?
1: I have not. heard really great things about it, though.
0: I watched it the other night. It's very entertaining, yet it struck me as really dangerous Hindu nationalist propaganda.
1: I've heard that tape. Yeah, I've heard people say that, yeah.
0: Dennis Limb. There's a new poll, I think it's Sight and Sound, was it, that gave a film I'd never heard of the number one slot, Gene Dealman? What can you tell us about that? And should we definitely watch it?
1: You should definitely watch it. It's a great film. I think some people were surprised to see it top the poll. Chantal Ackerman is, was, I should say, she passed away a few years ago. I think one of the most important filmmakers of her generation the film is about a woman it's about three days in her life and we were talking about you know hong and the quotidian i think this is this is one of the great films about the quotidian it looks very closely at her day-to-day existence it's unfolds over uh, the course of three days yeah, I, I think to say too much more would be—you can really spoil a film like this. But it, it's definitely a film that has a—I guess you could call it—a narrative twist. But what the film does with time and the viewer's experience of time is remarkable. I, I think it's a film that you know Ackerman said that she wanted to make a film that conveys that conveys the full weight of duration. You see this woman, John Dealman, making the bed, or you know, brewing a pot of coffee, setting the table, and you are required to to experience how long each of these things take then now this sounds really boring but I think there's something about the effect of watching this film that kind of alters you know just one's almost one's physical relationship with the screen and I think it does something to our our experience uh, and our perception of time in a way that I think only cinema can do you know it's it's a it's a time-based medium, and I think Ackerman is, is one, of the, one of the great filmmakers who understood that. I think there'll be many more opportunities to see the film now. I don't know that I recommend watching this film at home. It requires, you know, it's three hours, plus it should be watched all in one go, ideally. But I think it's an experience like, unlike any other.
0: Dennis Slim, what do you have coming up in terms of writing and in terms of festivals?
1: I am not currently writing a book. (laughs) I'm thinking about what's next in terms of a writing project. I hope to be figuring that out this year. In terms of festivals, I work on the New York Film Festival, as you mentioned. We are just about starting the process now. Uh, The festival takes place in September, October, and we try to... Just come up with a slate of films that represents what's interesting about the year in cinema from the very big and very commercial, you know, sort of Oscar, the Oscar campaign movies, uh, the very anticipated fall movies to, you know, the auteur art house films to discoveries, first time filmmakers, experimental work. Uh, the festival tries to cover all bases. I work with a programming team and we're just about starting our work for this year's festival.
0: Does that mean people send stuff to you then?
1: Yes, people do. And we also go out and you know, watch films at other festivals and, and, and we sort of research and, and track films in production from different parts of the world throughout the
0: year. Do you think that film will come back, movie theaters will come back, or have we completely entered a new universe post-COVID?
1: Well, it's hard to say. I don't think they'll go away. It's it's really hard to predict at the stage what's happening. I can say that that you know there is this doomsday take on the future of cinema. It's it seems to be getting louder these days. It's it's sort of you know hard to miss it as somebody who who works in cinema. But I think we should remember that this is a medium that's been defined by change from the very beginning, and that often these 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 moments of of change have been experienced as declines or deaths. You know, I think some people would have said that the invention of sound killed cinema or that uh, television killed cinema or, you know, the death of the studio system killed cinema. I think it, is finding its place in the culture right now, but I think you know, as somebody who programs for the cinema and who goes to the cinema a lot still, I I know that there are audiences who are very interested in the communal experience. I think festivals still do well. I think some retrospective screenings still do very well. Where I am in New York, at least, I, I feel confident that the cinema going experience isn't going away. <laughs> That's maybe as optimistic uh, as as I can be.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Dennis Lim, whose book is titled Tale of Cinema. The Hong Sang soo Festival at BAM PFA in Berkeley runs February 3rd to 18th. And for more information, you can go to bampfa.org. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.